Hey, y'all. Your fam, Black Fluid Poet. Check it out. If you love this podcast, I want to thank you for favoriting the podcast because it means the world to me. However, the way I can get more advertisers is to have more subscribers. If advertisers um, see that um, I have a lot of subscribers, they will be more willing to give me opportunities to advertise for them. So in order for me to get these ads, I need to get to a decent amount of subscribers. So you come here to anchor.fm and you go to support and you can pick 99 cents, 4.99 or 9.99. Please feel free to pick 99 cents. I, I, I am overjoyed at anyone who wants to support my dream of getting this podcast taking off. You know what I'm saying? So please just consider it. If I could get a thousand subscribers, I could get out of this poverty thing. You know what I'm saying? Because, yo, the struggle is real. Y'all take care. Hey, y'all. So check it, check it, check it, check it out. I just came across a new clothing line that is amazing. It is Jupiter's Art. This is a clothing line for non-binary people, right? So the clothes are genderless and uh, they are also sustainable. Um, There's carbon offset and they don't add anything negative to the environment. And they're also um, an ethical company with fair pay for their employees And they welcome uh, anyone in the spectrum of LGBT and race. It is owned by people of color and they deserve your attention. You can find Jupiter's Art on Instagram, on TikTok, and you can search for them on Google and find the website. It is amazing. Check it, check it, check it out. Wait till you see this jacket. Oh my God. It it is amazing. Y'all, you got to peep it. Jupiter's Art. Check it. Hey, y'all. You ever heard of an amazing young woman by the name of Zinzi Smith? Well, I have. And her and I had just an amazing conversation on Beyonce's internet. I will have you know that 20-year-old Zinzi Smith has her own black woman-owned business for an entire year now teaching spin classes. And let me tell you, she's enthusiastic. She wants the world to know that she's ready to help you shed them pounds from Thanksgiving and Christmas and help you keep up with that New Year's resolution that all of us middle-aged people like to make while we're still making them. So I, for one, am going to try and take one of her classes, just $15 for an online class with Zinzi Smith. She also teaches in person in studios in Brooklyn and in Queens and NYC. And all around, I got to tell you, I am just in awe of her. So you can reach out to her on Spin With Zin. That's Spin With Z-I-N on TikTok and on Instagram. And let her know that you heard it here on Black Fluid Poets Podcast. And you're trying to shed them pounds and keep up that New Year's resolution. You feel me? So, give her a shout out. Let me know how it went. Hey, y'all. I hope you're doing well. 
Hope you're loving yourself, most of all. This is December 20th. Technically the 21st, because it's after midnight. We are four days in a wake-up from Christmas. For those of you who do celebrate it. And I'll be spending this holiday season alone. And I'm not sure how I feel about it. This year has been a, an amazing year for transformation. And my awareness about myself has grown unfathomably. I, unfortunately, I have the quarantine to thank for that. I've been alone so much. And I've had so much time to reflect. I mean, I don't know if it's happened to you, but there's been moments when I just, I couldn't watch another Netflix show or I couldn't play another game on my phone. I didn't want to hear any more music. And I felt like I was longing, right? And I felt like I was longing for people. So I would be on some Zoom meeting or, you know, talk to some friends on the phone and that wasn't it either. It was like this overwhelming awareness that I had no idea who I really was. And in spending so much time alone, for the first time in my life, I had to deal with me. And by dealing with me, I had to deal with my past. I had to deal with my anxieties about the future. I had to reflect on how long I've been alive and where where on the line of success do I place myself? How much have I achieved and am I satisfied with how I've done so far? These thoughts were creeping up on me day after day after day until at some point I finally started sitting down and reflecting on it, writing about it, and there were so many things about myself that I had not come to terms with that prior to the quarantine, I had jobs and friends and, you know, hobbies and school. I had plenty of distractions. And before this year, it was tequila and crack cocaine and heroin and you know, crystal meth, and there were all these other ways in which I didn't have to focus on the parts of me that were aging. And by, by aging, I mean, you know, when you have a car for a while, there's that one particular place where the rust is or that one scratch from that one day that that thing happened. I I had no choice but to really take an honest inventory of where I was in my life and how do I feel about it. And I got to tell you, a lot of it wasn't pretty. There was so much that I had grown ashamed of. Things from my childhood and my adolescence. and It seemed like in every decade there was this watershed moment that I hadn't dealt with. Some 
some instance or event or even words that I said or didn't say that I had shoved in, you know, some box and, you know, halfway closed it and then threw a sheet on top of it and stuck it in the corner of the basement, put some stuff on top of it, you know. And here I was in this basement due to quarantine, just in this room of old things. And you know how you forget that something was there this whole time? I had those moments. I had moments like remembering the first time my mother hit me and the shock that overtook my being to where I couldn't even cry. I just, I remember looking at her and thinking, what the hell just, what do you, what is wrong with you? Like what just happened? And how after that day, I was afraid of my mother. It didn't matter what she said. It just mattered whether or not I had been hit during that interaction with her. Like it just changed me forever. I knew in the back of my head, no matter how many nice things she said, at some point she was going to haul off and hit me again. I think that was, was probably the first time my walls went up. I must have been about four, you know? And now, like, if I reflect on that and I reflect on how my relationship built with my mother, how I avoided listening to her because I, I just didn't trust her. I didn't trust her with my safety after that. And I remember my dad always promising to come visit after he had left and him never showing up. And that again caused more distrust to people who were responsible for loving me. And I noticed that in all of my interactions with all of my friends, I never say I love you, or at least I'm never first to say it. incredible I intrinsically know that once I tell someone I love them I've given them permission to hurt me it's not the same as saying once I love somebody they're gonna hurt me but when I say I love you to someone what I'm saying is I've opened my chest bare and you could do whatever it is you're going to do. And I won't be able to stop it until it's over. Now that I love you, I am susceptible to your character defects. And I don't think it means the same to everyone. So sometimes when I have a friend that says, hey, love you. I say, all right, <laughs> I don't say I love you back. I go, okay. There's a couple of people who I do say it back to, 
but not until I am absolutely confident that they understand what I mean by that. Because it means different things to different people. You know, for some people, if I love you, I'll loan you money. But for me, when I say I love you, I mean I'll give you my last. I'll give you whatever I have left. And I'm not sure that that is so healthy. But it is what I do. I'm sure that I'm overcompensating for my father being unavailable. I'm sure I go out of my way to tolerate more pain to prevent myself from lashing out. I know I have the potential to lash out because I am my mother's son and I've seen what she does. I've seen the damage she's caused. My mother served 12 years in prison. One night, drunk, high on cocaine, she decided to rob the house of an elderly couple that she was caretaking for. She went there in the middle of the night, broke into the house, and tried to steal their money. The old man woke up and heard my mother and called out to her. My mother then proceeded to take the hammer she broke into the house with, walked into the bedroom, and hit him in the skull with the claw part of the hammer, killing him instantly. His wife woke up and had a heart attack when she saw what happened. I am absolutely afraid of my anger. I've been angry a good three or four times to a point that I felt like I was having an outer body experience. I mean, it was as if every word I was saying and every action my body took was a possession of some sort. I remember how liberating it felt. It was like for the first time in my life, the expectations of society, my morals, my value, nothing mattered at that moment. It was as if every single body part had its own individual mind. And I remember being terrified at the same time I was absolutely enraged. And many people will tell you that anger is a reaction to fear or hurt. But I think in being hurt, you're afraid the pain won't stop, so you lash out. I wonder what your triggers are. Mine is disloyalty. This, for me, there's just nothing worse. I remember nodding my head while reading the autobiography of Malcolm X when he said that he could conceive death, but he could never conceive being disloyal. He could actually see himself dying for another person before betraying them. And I totally understood that. I 
I think that my greatest moments of anger were when I came to the conclusion there was nothing left to lose. That it didn't matter at that point. I watched everyone in my family at one point or another physically lash out in anger. My siblings fist fighting, my mother beating one of us. Um, I had a brother that had absolutely no control of his anger. He served three years in the stockade for beating up his drill sergeant in the army. I remember going to visit my mother when she was in prison and we'd place our hands on the glass, touch, well, seeming to touch each other, you know. And I just remember looking at this woman who was just getting older and older and older. And she was aging so fast. I'm sure, you know, prison does that, you know. I'm sure her wrinkles and her gray hair came twice as fast as it would have had she been free. But there was also a part of her that was, it seemed gentler. It was almost as if prison was a gift. She was free. She was free of everything out here. I saw my mother smile and laugh more when she was in prison than when she was home. And maybe it's because she was putting on airs because her son was coming to visit her and she didn't want me to be scared. But then at other times I wondered if it's exactly what she needed. Referring back again to Malcolm X, I remember when he talked about being in prison and how it could be a gift. How having that time in a small cell to just think about himself and his life gave him an opportunity to reinvent himself. And there are times I wondered if my mother reinvented herself in prison. At one point, I saw her be more compassionate than I had ever seen her before. I remember I went to visit her and my mom said to me, John, I want you to look around. You see all these women? And I said, yeah. She said, I want you to look at who's visiting them. And for almost every woman there was another woman visiting them. I was usually the only man in the room. Sometimes maybe one of two. Never one of three, though. At most, there were two men and usually you know, tens of women in these little visiting booths, you know, on these phones. And she said, do you know why this is? She said, I need you to understand that ev almost every woman in here is in here for something they did for a man. Holding their money, holding their drugs, driving the getaway car, hiding evidence, lying for them. Almost every woman in here is in here for some sacrifice they made for a man. It's as if that's all women ever do and it's all they're ever expected to do. 
And I saw her hands start to shake while she was smoking her cigarette. And I thought about me and how I always expected my girlfriends to make sacrifices for me, to lie to their parents about where they were going, to stay out later than they were supposed to, sometimes even try to coerce them to have sex when they weren't ready, but always, always expecting them to give up what they valued or believed in as if to prove their loyalty to me. But what did I give up? What did I sacrifice for them? Sitting around my house for the last couple of months, I've thought about that. The older I got, the more sacrifices I made. And I think it's because of that conversation I had with my mother. You know, when the men are getting their visits, it's the girlfriends, the wives, the mothers, the daughters. They, everybody brings their kids. They bring cards. They send commissary. My mother was telling me, these women don't get commissary. They're all in here borrowing things from each other, trying to get by. And I had to ask myself, was I that kind of guy? And the answer was a resounding yes. And I remember spending a week in, my, in this house just going over relationship after relationship after relationship and expecting um, this reciprocity from my loyalty, you know, expecting, you know, to be loved forever because I was doing everything I was supposed to be doing which was the minimum. I wasn't going above and beyond. I was faithful in most of my relationships. I'd like to think that I was honest. And because of that, I was expecting grand sacrifices from the women in my life. I was doing the minimum and I was expecting them to go above and beyond. And then I thought about my mother how she gave up any ideas of having a career or going to college, even though she could read a book a day. But there she was, being a caretaker for the elderly, lifting people's bodies from beds to wheelchairs, from wheelchairs to bathtubs, from bathtubs to wheelchairs, from wheelchairs to the sofa, pre preparing their food and cleaning their homes just so she could pay this outrageous rent on a house in a really, you know, uh, elite white suburban neighborhood so that I could go to, you know, the best public education schools, public educational schools that money could buy. And my mother, man, she gave up so much. All the stuff she tolerated from my dad to try to keep a man in the house to help bring in money. And the times that she snapped. It's like there was nothing left to lose when she snapped. She was just tired. She was tired of playing by rules that she didn't even have any participation in creating. 
always expected to make sacrifices, expected to toe the line. And myself being this male, white-presenting dude, living in a lot of privilege, being a good-looking, able-bodied young man, not understanding what my mother was going through. I just always thought she had an attitude, you know. She went above and beyond all the time. All the time. It's hard to... It's embarrassing to realize so long after she died how much she did for me. I'm ashamed of my inability to appreciate the stress and strain she was under to do everything right. She would make about, I think it was somewhere between 15 and $20 a month working in the prison. And when I was in foster care, she'd send that check to me. And I remember looking at the check when I was like 16, 17, 18, thinking, what the fuck am I going to do with this? Not realizing she was giving me her last. My mother was always giving me her last. 